Mystery, the bite-sized birthday biography podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Mira. This is a podcast which shines a spotlight on a person born on this day at some point in history somewhere in the world who made a positive, lasting impact. Today, March 17th, we're going to talk about Bayard Rustin, the forgotten civil rights hero. If given 10 seconds to list civil rights heroes and activists off the top of your head, the list might go something like this. MLK, Malcolm X, Rosa Parks, Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, John Lewis. Maybe you've been following along with the podcast, and you might also include Joan Trumpauer Mulholland or Mary Church Terrell, Enolia McMillan, James Shack Daddy Orange, Michael Schwerner, Daisy Bates, Jimmy Lee Jackson. Maybe you've listened when I have discussed icons of color who did not consider themselves civil rights activists, but they nevertheless broke barriers and boundaries simply by following their dreams. People like Dr. Euphemia Haynes, the first woman of color to be a PhD mathematician, or Alan Leroy Locke, the first African-American Rhodes Scholar, or Dr. Edward Boucher, the first black PhD physicist. People like Hiram Rhodes Revels, the first black man in Congress, or abolitionist David Walker, author of Walker's Appeal. People like Robert Henry Lawrence Jr., the first African-American astronaut, or Moses Fleetwood Walker, the first black man to play in Major League Baseball. Dr. Frederick Patterson, founder of the United Negro College Fund. People like Paul Williams, the man that built Hollywood and the stars that occupied it, like Ethel Waters, the first black American to have her own TV show, or the legendary actor Eddie Rochester Anderson. Black people have been left out of the American narrative since we started having a narrative. And while we are trying to make up for lost time, it's a Sisyphean task. Even in the civil rights movement, society was very particular about the black people allowed to serve as the face of it. MLK was fine. He was still murdered, though. But he was better than Malcolm X because Malcolm X scared the bejesus out of white people. Rosa Parks was a convenient icon for integration because she was considered a respectable black person, unlike Claudette Colvin, who did the exact same thing Parks did but nine months before, and as an unmarried pregnant 15-year-old. Colvin was not the face of black community that they wanted to present to society in a bid for equality. There seemed to be a right way to be black, and that was religious, passive, married, and hetero, and a wrong way. Bayard was not the figurehead that the civil rights movement wanted. He was gay. He had communist affiliations when he was younger. He did not stay in his lane. He pushed for gay rights. He did not hide his own identity, even though he was thrown in jail for it. He pushed for an end to anti-Semitism. He led boycott after protest after march. He fought and he fought and he fought, but he did so largely behind the scenes because he was the wrong kind of black man. Rustin did not know his father. He was born to Florence Rustin and Archie Hopkins in Westchester, Pennsylvania. Florence was only 16 at the time, and Archie bailed soon after the birth of his son. So as an infant, Bayard was handed over to his grandparents, Julia and Jennifer Rustin. They had 12 kids of their own. Florence had been number nine. So Rustin was told that his grandparents were his bio parents and that his mother Florence was his sister. Julia and Jennifer were Quakers and civil rights activists, so Rustin grew up being taught that the whole earth is one human family in which all members are equal. Icons like W.E.B. Du Bois and NAACP leader James Weldon Johnson dropped by the house frequently to chat about current events. A New York Times obituary for Rustin many years later would quote him when he listed, The principal factors which influence my life are, one, 
nonviolent tactics, two, constitutional means, three, democratic procedures, four, respect for human personality, five, a belief that all people are one. In high school, Rustin wrote poetry and he played left tackle. And it was around this time that he started to get a sense of his own sexuality. So sitting down with his grandmother, still thinking she was his mom, he told her that he found the company of men preferable to the company of women. To which Julie replied, well, I suppose that's what you need to do. Very much not the average response to a young black man opening up about his homosexuality during the 1920s, but a blessing nonetheless. On the grounds of his amazing tenor voice, he received musical scholarships to both Wilberforce University, he was expelled for organizing a strike, and at Cheney State Teachers College for a while before moving to Harlem, enrolling at City College. He joined a quartet and even performed in John Henry alongside Paul Robeson. He took a deep interest in the Scottsboro Boys, trying to get involved in the defense of the nine young black men accused of gang raping two white women. This was also the time when he got involved with the Young Communist League. It would be a fleeting affair, ending after Rustin left the group when they ordered him to stop protesting racial segregation in the military. Brief as it was, though, it was still enough to get him on the radar of the FBI, specifically J. Edgar Hoover, who made a mental note to keep an eye on this gay black communist. At the time, the Communist Party USA was very involved in the civil rights movement. Following Stalin's theory of nationalism, the Communist Party's idea was to create a separate nation for black people, located in the American Southeast, as that's where the largest population of black people already were. This was their mission and vision until World War II started, and then they switched focus to supporting the U.S. getting involved in the war. The idea of a separate part of the country for black people did not gel with Rustin, so he shifted towards the socialist movement, getting involved with A. Philip Randolph, the head of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, the first African-American-led labor union. In 1941, Rustin became the race relations secretary for the Fellowship of Reconciliation, hereto known as FOUR, a series of religious organizations who believed in advocating social change through nonviolent means. Around this time, Rustin and Randolph got together with A.J. Musti, a Dutch-born clergyman and a union rights-slash-civil rights-slash-anti-war activist, and decided to do a march on Washington to protest the ongoing segregation in the armed forces. For more of a glimpse into the abuses that black military officers faced, listen to our October 3rd podcast on Robert Henry Lawrence Jr., the first black astronaut who was asked such unbelievable questions at press conferences as, will you have to sit in the back of the plane? And our October 10th episode on Dr. Frederick T. Patterson, the man who helped create the Tuskegee Airmen, who all faced brutal racism at the hands of their fellow pilots and their colonels. So Randolph has a sit down in the Oval Office with FDR, and he tells them that unless the military was desegregated, there would be a march on Washington. And FDR was like, yes, absolutely, great idea. So he creates Executive Order 8802, which banned discrimination in the armed forces. And Randolph believed that change was on the way, and he canceled the march against the advice of Rustin. The armed forces, though, didn't actually end up being desegregated until 1948, when President Truman issued another EO. Prior to the end of the war, though, Rustin left D.C. for California to use his power to advocate for the over 100,000 Japanese people interred in camps. This bit of daring do impressed Musti, and he made Rustin FOR's Secretary for General Affairs. But Rustin had not forgotten the integration struggle, as if a black person ever could. 
1942, he got on a bus going from Louisville to Nashville, planting himself in the second row. The bus driver repeatedly asked him to move to the back until just outside of Nashville. The bus was stopped, and Rustin was dragged out by cops, beaten, arrested, but released with no charges. This was a pivotal moment for Rustin, not just as a black man, but also as a gay man. As he later shared in a Washington Blade interview, As I was going by the second seat to go to the rear, a white child reached out for the ring necktie I was wearing and pulled it, whereupon its mother said, Don't touch an N-word. If I go and sit quietly at the back of that bus now, that child, who was so innocent of race relations that it was going to play with me, will have seen so many blacks go in the back and sit down quietly that it's going to end up saying they like it back there. I've never seen anyone protest against it. I owe it to that child, not only to my own dignity, I owe it to that child, that it should be educated to know that blacks do not want to sit in the back, and therefore I should get arrested, letting all these white people in the bus know that I do not accept that. It occurred to me shortly after that, that it was an absolute necessity for me to declare homosexuality, because if I didn't, I was part of the prejudice. I was aiding and abetting the prejudice that was a part of the effort to destroy me. In 1942, Rustin assisted James Farmer, George Hauser, and Bernice Fisher in the forming of the Congress of Racial Equality, also known as CORE. CORE was founded on the idea of nonviolence inspired by Gandhi. Because Rustin and many other members of CORE were avowed pacifists, they refused to enlist in the military. Charged with violating the Selective Services Act, Rustin and many other CORE members were thrown into Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary. Rustin didn't let incarceration stop him, though, and he spent his time in prison leading protests against its segregated dining halls, as well as establishing the Free India Committee. For the next five years, until India's liberation from British rule, Rustin would be arrested for protesting against English colonialism in both India and Africa. In 1947, Rustin and Hauser organized the first Freedom Ride, known as the Journey of Reconciliation. Starting on April 9th, Bayard, Hauser, and 17 other activists started a two-week-long bus journey from Washington, D.C. to North Carolina. This event was the genesis of the Freedom Rides of the early 1960s. The mixture of black and white men and women included many members of Corps, musicians, attorneys, students, biologists, church leaders, and social workers. The group started out from D.C. and got as far as Durham, North Carolina. The driver asked Rustin to move to the back. He refused, and the cops were called. Shockingly, the cops did nothing and told Rustin and the driver to figure it out on their own. There was a stalemate for about 45 minutes while they both refused to budge before the other passengers started to complain about the delay and the busman was forced to grudgingly drive on. For the next few days of the trip, there would not be only black people sitting up front, but also white people sitting in the back and black and white people sitting side by side, all of which was against state laws. On April 13th, two of the black activists were arrested for not giving up their seats, and two white activists were arrested for trying to protect them. The activist who went to bail them out of jail, James Peck, was punched in the head by a taxicab driver on the way there. Back on the bus, the now-reunited group faced growing hostilities. Martin Watkins, a disabled white veteran, was beat up by a group of taxi drivers when he talked to a black woman at a bus stop. What the hell is going on with taxi drivers out here? So Rustin and two of the white men arrested on the bus earlier lost their appeals and they were thrown into segregated chain gangs. North Carolina judge Henry Whitfield told the group of white and black activists during their sentencing, it's about time you Jews from New York learned that you just can't come down here bringing your N-words with you to upset the customs of the South. 
Just to teach you a lesson, I gave your black boys 30 days and I give you 90. All in all, there would be 16 arrests during this first freedom ride. The next year, 1948, Rustin went to India to further study nonviolent civil resistance from Gandhian followers. This would be the first in a series of trips to Africa and India to deepen his knowledge on the topic. Rustin's ascension into the heights of the civil rights movement ground to a halt due to an incident in Pasadena in 1953. Rustin and two white men were in a car, allegedly engaged in a sexual activity, when the cops rolled up. Rustin was arrested on charges of lewd conduct and vagrancy. He plea bargained down to a charge of sexual perversion, which is what sodomy was referred to back then, even if it was consensual, as this encounter was, and he spent 60 days in jail. Even though he had never tried to hide his sexual identity before, this was the first time that word of it was getting out beyond his immediate circle. Now, a lot of people knew that one of the most rapidly rising icons of the civil rights era was gay. He was pushed to resign from four, and this made his partnership with Musti extremely tense, especially since Musti had already tried to talk him out of being gay when they first met. Still, not everyone was turning their back on Rustin. He was offered and accepted a position as executive secretary for the War Registers League, the United States' oldest secular pacifist organization. But this didn't sit well with some people, and while on a lecture circuit for the WRL, an American Legion post in Montana tried to get him banned from talking in their state, claiming that he would try to turn people gay. He next partnered up with American Friends Service Committee in 1955 to write Speak Truth to Power, a Quaker search for an alternative to violence, the most influential pacifist piece of literature written in the U.S., Rustin contributed his genius anonymously, though, knowing that his connection to any document would automatically taint it and cause it to be viewed as a piece of homosexual propaganda. The following year, Rustin took a leave from the WRL and took an advisory post to MLK. Dr. King wanted Rustin's insight into Gandhian nonviolence tactics as he was planning the Montgomery bus boycott. Rustin later shared that King's use of nonviolent tactics were virtually non-existent when he came on board, saying... I think it's fair to say that Dr. King's view of nonviolent tactics was almost non-existent when the boycott began. In other words, Dr. King was permitting himself and his children and his home to be guarded by guns. Rustin convinced Dr. King to forego armed protection, including the handgun that up until that point, Dr. King had always kept on him. In 1957, Dr. King and Rustin started to form the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the SCLC. There was a lot of grumbling going on among other black leaders that Rustin's sexual identity and former ties to communism would render the organization ineffectual. Dr. King, who had never been okay with Rustin's sexuality but valued his expertise in other areas, was conflicted. It wasn't until Rustin and King started to plan a march and decided to not include the Democratic National Convention that things went sideways. U.S. Rep. and Baptist pastor Adam Clayton Powell Jr., who represented Harlem from 1945 up to 1971, straight up told King, if you do not include the DNC, I will tell the newspapers that you and Rustin are lovers. King, terrified that someone would think he was gay, canceled the march and told Rustin that he had to resign. Crestfallen, Rustin resigned. This move was not a popular one, though, as a Harper's Magazine noted in the James Baldwin penned article stating that King's choice, quote, lost him much moral credit in the eyes of the young. 
Yet the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedoms needed to happen somehow, and every civil rights activist knew this. Almost everyone had to agree that Rustin would be the ideal engine behind this locomotive. So in 1962, Asa Philip Randolph, the head of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, pushed Rustin to take charge of organizing the march that would take place in August of the following year as a 100-year celebration of the Emancipation Proclamation. And take charge he did. Rustin scheduled and organized the speakers. He worked out the traffic logistics with the bus captains. He trained off-duty cops to act as marshals. But regardless of his work, he got no credit. The NAACP chairman Roy Wilkins insisted that Rustin received no credit for his work because, quote, this march is of such importance that we must not put a person of his liabilities at the head. So Randolph was named as the head of the march and Ruskin was made his deputy. Three weeks before the march was scheduled to take place on August 28th, South Carolina Senator and all-around pain in the ass, Strom Thurmond, said that Rustin was a, quote, communist draft-dodger homosexual, which made the march a sordid affair that should be canceled. Thurman had Rustin's arrest record from the incident in Pasadena entered into the record and started waving around a photo he had gotten from the FBI, which showed Rustin talking to MLK while MLK was in the tub, squawking that this was definitive proof that these two were lovers. Both King and Rustin denied these accusations. Sidebar, if you're not familiar with Strom Thurmond and you feel like reading about an absolute piece of human garbage, you should read about this guy. At 22, he committed statutory rape against his parents' 16-year-old black housemaid. She became pregnant and gave birth to his daughter, Essie May, who waited until after his death to come forward about her heritage. Strom spent his entire career fighting against the civil rights movement, once saying in his speech, I want to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, there's not enough troops in the army to force the Southern people to break down segregation and admit the Nigra race into our theaters, swimming pools, homes, and churches. He fought against Brown versus Board of Ed. He fought against making MLK's birthday a holiday. He fought for the exoneration of William Calley, the war criminal who led the Miley Massacre, which caused the deaths of 22 unarmed Vietnamese peasants, and Strom had a lifelong habit of sexually assaulting and harassing women that he worked with. The one good thing about him was that he was so despised by the time of the march that a lot of people chose to overlook Rustin's gayness because anything was better than being on the side of Strom Thurmond. So even though a lot of people were trying to make Rustin fade into the background, it just was not going to happen. And on September 6, 1963, Randolph and Rustin were on the cover of Life magazine as the leaders of the march. The following year, Rustin leaned hard into school integration, joining up with the Harlem community leaders to coordinate a school-wide boycott of all schools. The United Federation of Teachers refused to participate, but promised to protect any participating teachers from reprisals. Nevertheless, the boycott took place on February 3rd, and it was, as the newspaper stated, quote, the largest civil rights demonstration with over 400,000 black, white, and Latino parents and kids participating. A second boycott on May 18th, which called for a maximum possible integration, brought out only 4,000 participants, but the Board of Ed ignored both protests. Word got around, of course, and when Rustin was asked to speak at the U of Virginia that year, the school administrators panicked and tried to bar him from coming, afraid that he would organize a boycott there as well. Around this time, Dr. King seemed to regret pushing Rustin out, and he wanted to bring him on as the executive director of the SCLC, but he was talked out of it by his advisor and friend, Stanley Levison, who pointed out that Rustin's more recent Marxist leanings made him a liability. 
It's unclear if Rustin would have accepted that position, though, because he was starting to step from protests to politics, as he put it. Since the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was now in place, he said that it was time to stop focusing on getting a seat at the counter, since they now legally had one, and to lend their collective weight to ensuring the financial stability to pay for the meal. Rustin was concerned about identity politics, fearing that the rise in Black nationalism would alienate the white allies that the Black community really needed to achieve their goals. He ironically had this great disdain for Black nationalism, yet was an ardent proponent of Zionism, seeing many similarities between the struggle of the Black man and the Jewish man in America. Jews in the Soviet Union as well faced horrible discrimination, yet were banned from leaving their country. So Rustin became one of the most outspoken proponents for allowing Jews in the USSR to move to Israel. In 1966, he chaired the historic Ad Hoc Commission on Rights of Soviet Jews, which was organized by the Conference on the Status of Soviet Jews, and consisted of a panel of six jurors in the Commission's Public Tribunal on Jewish Life in the USSR. The accounts of the Soviet Jews they spoke to and the panel's overall findings were submitted to the UN, and the UN demanded that Soviet authorities allow Jews to practice their religion and to leave the USSR at will. Rustin also would support Senator Henry Jackson and Senator Daniel Patrick Monaghan in their creation of the Jackson-Vonick Amendment, a critical piece of humanitarian and economic legislation that restricted U.S. trade with the USSR in relation to its treatment of Jews. Labor rights seemed the next logical step, as good jobs meant good wages, good homes, good education, and good lives for all marginalized people. A rich person of color's life would be substantially easier than an impoverished person of color's would be. So Rustin worked with unions and social democratic politicians and organizations to increase visibility, rights, and wages for the working man and woman. He became involved with the Social Democrats of America as well as the League for Industrial Democracy. By the time the 1980s rolled around, Rustin realized that gay rights were becoming the new battleground for the civil rights movement. He had been careful to avoid being publicly linked with the movement until his longtime partner, Walter Nagel, pushed him to get involved. So Rustin spoke on behalf of New York State's gay rights bill, and in 1986, he gave a stirring speech entitled, The New N-Words Are Gays. In this speech, he said, Today, blacks are no longer the litmus paper or the barometer of social change. Blacks are in every segment of society, and there are laws that help to protect them from racial discrimination. The new N-words are gays. It is in this sense that gay people are the new barometer for social change. The question of social change should be framed with the most vulnerable group in mind, gay people. Rustin was probably also encouraged to speak out as he was now in the longest relationship of his life. Walter, a white photographer, 37 years Rustin's junior, remembers when they met. The day that I met Bayard, I was on my way to Times Square. We were on the same corner waiting for the light to change. He had a wonderful shock of white hair. I guess he was of my parents' generation, but we looked at each other and lightning struck. The two were crazy about each other, but due to their inability to marry in order to legally preserve their union, they took the not unusual step of adoption. In 1982, Rustin, a 67-year-old black man, adopted Walter, a 30-year-old white man. As Walter recalled it, Rustin was concerned about protecting my rights because gay people had no protection. At that time, marriage between a same-sex couple was inconceivable. And so he adopted me, legally adopted me, in 1982. That was the only thing that we could do to kind of legalize our relationship. 
We actually had to go through a process as if Bayard was adopting a small child. My biological mother had to sign a legal paper, a paper disowning me. They had to send a social worker to our home. When the social worker arrived, she had to sit down and talk to us to make sure that this was a fit home. Tragically, on August 24th, 1987, Bayard died suddenly of a perforated appendix. President Reagan issued a statement praising Rustin for his civil rights work and quote, never giving up his conviction that minorities in America could and would succeed based on their individual merit. As a president who ignored the AIDS crisis, denied funding to research, didn't even say the word AIDS in public until he'd been president for four years, and whose office's social stance was that AIDS was a legal issue, not a medical one, since gay men were breaking the law, Reagan made sure to not mention Rustin's orientation, his widower, or the work that Rustin had done for the gay rights movement. By the early 90s, Rustin's name and legacy were starting to fade. This was partly because he had to, slash chose to, depending on the situation, work in the shadows, but mostly because the black community did not want a gay man being revered as a civil rights hero, especially during the AIDS epidemic. To date, there have been schools, libraries, and social justice centers across the country named after him. He was posthumously added to the Chicago Legacy Walk, an outdoor public display which celebrates LGBTQ history and people, as well as the San Francisco Rainbow Honor Walk, a walk of fame noting LGBTQ people who have made significant contributions in their fields. In 2013, President Obama awarded him a posthumous Medal of Freedom. It was accepted by Walter. In that same ceremony, pro tennis player and author Tam O'Shaughnessy accepted a Medal of Freedom for her late partner Sally Ride as well. Walter and Tam were the first gay people to accept Medals of Freedom for their late partners. In 2020, California Governor Gavin Newsom issued a pardon for Rustin's Pasadena arrest. Rustin is survived by Walter Nagel, who is the executive director of the Bayard Rustin Fund. If you want to find out more about the amazing life of Rustin, you can check out the incredible documentary on his life, Brother Outsider, or John D'Amelio's biography, The Lost Prophet, The Life and Times of Bayard Rustin, or Rustin's collection of his writings, Time on Two Crosses. My sources today were Henry Louis Gates Jr.'s incredible article, Who Designed the March on Washington, available on PBS, Stanford University, Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute, and good old Wikipedia. A biopic on Rustin via the Obama's Higher Ground production company is coming to Netflix in the next few months. Thank you so much for joining me for our birthday celebration of Bayard Rustin. Please join me on March 30th when we talk about Carl Lutz, the man who saved 62,000 Jews during World War II, the largest rescue in the entire war. See you then.